You're listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the podcast for public relations professionals that are ready to see real change in the PR industry. Here are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooler. Welcome back. You're listening to the Trust Relations PR Wind Down. I'm April White, the founder and president of Trust Relations. And I'm Laura Schooler. Our guest today is Danielle Arsenault. She's a PR consultant and she's going to be discussing in-house versus uh, agency life and um, the state of the industry and whatever else we get into. She's been in PR for a long time. Um, We also have our PR news fails and scary stories that you don't want to (laughs) miss. All right, let's get ready to wind down. So we have our anonymous story from our uh, listeners and I am opening it now for the first time. Here we go. Years ago, I was recruited to a large firm. I found out quickly that communication, ironically, wasn't the best internally. Expectations were high, but what they were exactly could be a guessing game. Objectively, we did good work because everyone cared about their job, but employee turnover was frequent and it was very stressful to manage expectations, not only from upper management, but the accounts you were assigned to. Things came to a head when we started to fall short of some goalposts and accounts started to complain. It got to a point where some accounts threatened to cancel their contact, their contract, and everyone was put on edge. The collateral damage of the threats was many people being let go. It was sudden and the reasons were vague. Morale dipped hard because we felt like walking targets. There was a lot more pressure to perform because at best we seemed in danger and at worst, kind of disposable. I'll never know because I took the very next offer I could get far away, but when internal communication breaks down to that level, can you ever even recover it? And how? Ah, it's a story with a question. So now we're responsible for giving some advice, I think. I think (laughs) think that's how that works, yes. (laughs) Good thing I have my giant Sally Jesse Raphael glasses on. Amen. You look the part, you look the part, so I'll let you do the honors while I have my non-wine wine. I worked at an agency during the dot-com era, and I felt like the internal turmoil went through the roof as the whole dot-com era, like, rose to the shot to the top and then fell off a cliff, like, the next day, and it was like Lord of the Flies, so I kind of understand that like feeling of like, oh my God, every day, like what's gonna happen and who's gonna get fired and who's gonna quit and who's, you know, stabbing me in the back and what account's gonna leave us. Yeah, it's a horrible feeling, especially when you're like young and don't really have a full understanding of like business and you also don't have a say in the matter um, and you just need money so that you can pay your rent, you know, the next month. Can you ever recover it is the question though. I don't know whatever happened there either. Like she, I I luckily got out and I don't really know what happened, but I will tell you that it was sort of a sub group of a bigger PR firm and it doesn't exist anymore. So maybe it was unrecoverable. I wonder if it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've worked at, um, I won't say the name, but I worked at an agency where it was a similar scenario and it did feel like if you weren't willing to play the games put forward by the executive team, and play the part that they wanted to, you to fit into culturally, that you were absolutely disposable. And there was this feeling of the young people where all the weight was on their shoulders of them being responsible for keeping everything afloat. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the people that were on accounts were normally, when I came in, most of the people that were there had only been there for six or seven months. And then even as I came in, people that were there for that little time left. I don't know how to recover it. My guess would be that you'd have to do a hard reset and you'd have to get a new management and you'd have to have a new culture and you have to new, have new standards and, and new levels of transparency. And it would be, you could, I think you could recover it, but I don't think without a hard reset. A lot of collateral damage and new people. I mean, I don't know. That's part of the thing that I, I found working at, um, you know, like established PR agencies. They were not good at that kind of thing, internal communications. I mean, I will say I've been reading The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey, and it's all about how you keep and 
basically that the speed of an operation is directly in correspondence to how much trust it has. Hmm. So the fast, the more trust there is, the faster things go. So it's not, there is a scientifically proven link to efficiencies and it's not just a nice to have soft science. It's something that's been proven over and over to actually have tangible results to the bottom, as far as the bottom line is concerned. No, it's a real management. Uh, it's a management issue. thing. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a huge management issue. And he recommends at least, I, I'm just starting it. So I wish I was further into it to give advice, but that you have to remind me, I'll circle back to it once I finished it. But what I've understood so far is he does think that trust is recoverable and he thinks a lot of it is based on transparency and so it's like going to a meeting where he'd go to a meeting with people and he would instead of discussing what they were all there to discuss if there was an M&A happening and it was something really uncomfortable he'd say hey well, I know we're here to talk about this but would you all rather actually talk about the acquisition that's going on if so let's just get into that and so mm -hmm. he would just open up these conversations and let people speak and get on the same page. So right, instead of forcing an agenda that nobody wants to discuss and it doesn't really, it's not um, authentic or organic, it could actually cause, cause more ill will. Yeah, everyone's pretending. Yeah, right. So, but is it just PR firms, or is he talking about any? Oh no, no, this is this is actually just a management book. This isn't right. anything to do with PR. Right. I just wonder um, if PR firms have a lock on doing this badly in some. Well, I mean, it, it is ironic, like, like this person says, right? She found out that communication ironically wasn't the best internally. So <laughs> there is something very strange about it. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's that in the same way that a lot of people in PR are really good at touting other people and other organizations and clients, but mm -hmm. aren't very good at self-promotion. Right. Maybe it's a similar thing where they're really good at communi on communicating on behalf of other people, but really stink at doing it yes. themselves. And I, so, because a lot of times we outsource things that we don't want to have to do ourselves and we'll do it for someone else, right? But we won't do it for ourselves. <laughs> like you'd rather focus on someone else's problem than you would like- Look at look your at, own- Look at your own issue of needing right. certain levels of control. So maybe it's a similar thing where it's like they're really good at communicating on behalf of other people, but just can't have candid conversations. I always felt that the reason why PR firms were not great at like, you know, doing internal communications was because they were so focused on clients that nobody felt that they had, you know, 10 minutes to focus on the business of their business. And, you know, you know, all the like, junior employees were 85% billable or whatever, you know, so there was nobody who could really stop and think and give a thoughtful approach. And also, again, as we've discussed, like, you know, why are you putting a lot of this on the shoulders of some 20 something year old who doesn't know anything about business and is just learning about business? Um, in that same firm, when things started to go downhill, they would just send us to like, industry conferences and not even PR industry conferences necessarily like tech conferences in the city and just be like, bring your cards and just go up to the booths and ask them for new business. <laughs> Hi, I work for a PR firm. Would you, would you need a PR firm? Like all of a sudden we were like cold calling salespeople. It was horrible. I mean, that could not have been effective. No, of course not. It didn't work at all ever. <laughs> it worked 0% of the time. That is so odd. But like some, you know, like again, like the 20 year olds who had just learned how to do PR were now supposed to go pitch new business with like their business card. I mean, there was no real, you know, you're not networking on the internet at that point. This is, you know, the nineties, maybe 2000, 99, 2000, just hand out business cards and like, be like, hi, I work at this PR firm. Do you need PR? <laughs> wow. That is. Good solution, huh? Yeah. Not so, so a good make solution. make your like mid-level junior, you know, mid-level type um, uh, SAEs or whatever suddenly become your sales force, without telling them at all how to like how sell. to sell the business. Right, and like, not, well, I don't it, think any right. of us wanted to do that. That was not what we were looking to do for a living either. I can do it now. 
but you know 22 years later or whatever well yeah. no most SAEs aren't exposed to that kind of new business process we actually have one on staff that that is and is a regular part of the new business process so she would actually be fantastic at it but right but that's what she wants to do and that's what she knows how to do right and that's just like yesterday you were pitching you know the dot-com client today you're going to go to the the, the tech um, convention and go get 10 new clients. <laughs> I mean, so I would, yeah, I wouldn't hand that to anyone but Cassie Gonzalez on our ah, team, but I've heard of her. <laughs> Cassie's the bomb. Yeah, no, that's just not something that most people know how to do or want to do. It's very intimidating. Client. Wait, so what responses did you get? Can you, do you remember? Yeah, I mean, people just be like, uh, okay, like, we'll take your card and let you know. I mean, you know, it was the equivalent of call, cold calling somebody on the phone and having them be like, okay, click. That's pretty yeah. wild. Yeah. So to, I guess we didn't really, we sort of answered the question, but it's very hard and it probably does take a lot of attrition to get to a new day. But I just feel like PR firms are reinventing themselves all the time, or they used to be. Hopefully somebody's learned a lesson, especially now during this pandemic, like the old model is, is not only on its way out, it's like gone and stamped on, so. Well, which old model, what do you mean? The old model of, you know, everybody come to work and work in the agency and oh. be in the office and, you know, go meet reporters in person. I mean, it just, none of it exists anymore. It literally doesn't exist right now at all. So you it's better true. have a new, a new approach. Yeah, and I think in general, I mean, for something that's gone that far off track, I think you can't, it can't be lip service. You'd have to actually change fundamentally right. how things are functioning. Right. Well, and that's the other thing. I think a lot of companies, not just PR firms, they say that they're going to do this, that, and the other program, and they, but they, they maybe do it once or for a couple months, and then it sort of peters out. But again, I think we've talked about it before. I feel like a lot of it is just human nature. I don't want to attribute it necessarily to PR firms or PR people. It's hard to keep people like, you know, motivated. Um, but I, I have, I, I have strong hope for the new virtual workplace. Oh, me too. No, I mean, I, and it's worked so well for trust relations. I sort of can't get over it. I mean, I've never had such a functional and happy work environment and I'm, you know, honored to be. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's exactly why, but <laughs> But there is something to be said for giving people their autonomy and, and trusting mm -hmm. them enough to, you know, get their work done on their own time, if that's the case, or to get their work done and without anybody looking over their shoulder to know if they're actually on a dating website or doing the thing that they say they're doing. You know what I mean? It's like, nobody's going to know that. Right. But, but it shows in the results. And so I think it actually creates a more results-oriented culture because... So what if every one of us has to do something personal every once in a while, right? Right. It doesn't mean we're not working hard. That just means we have to, we have a life we have to tend to. <laughs> so it's, I know, I, I can't, I don't know how I got anything done when I was working in an office. I felt the exact same way when I started working remotely. I don't, I mean, it would, the number of times I would just gab with people about their date from the night before, or what's going on with their boyfriend or what's happening with their our boss or what's or complaining about the client. But I mean, I don't know how I got anything done in my personal life. You know, like if I had to attend to some pay the bill or fix the refrigerator or whatever, I don't know how anything happened outside of work. Cause I was either going to work at work or coming home from work. Well, I remember I, so I had a really sick cat when I worked at Edelman and I lived in Long Island city and my office was in Times Square, of course. Mm -hmm for anyone that's worked at Edel Edelman, New York. I and worked so in Times Square. I, we had this conversation, right? About how it always looked like the doves were flying, but it was just the, the flashing signs of the flashing lights of Times Square. <laughs> There's a bird. There's a bird. There's a bird. Like, that's how the whole, that's how it went for me. I was sitting there and looking at it, like, it's in my peripheral all the time. Like, Not a relaxing environment for work. But anyway, so. No, incredibly stressful. It looks like we have Danielle. Hi guys, how are you? Hi, good. So as you can see, Danielle is hideous from her photo. So of course she couldn't do it in person. <laughs> no, okay, first of all, I have to let you know that uh, there, I, 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 there's been a lack of pandemic 
grooming and surfaces. <laughs> and no, I am, no, this picture is glorious and that's why I put it up as opposed to showing my real self. You don't really know what's happening behind the picture and that's exactly the point. That's, all right, all right, we'll take it. But I, I think that April's a little skeptical of how, how you probably don't look as bad as you think based on the photo that you're revealing to us. All so, right, girls. But I want to introduce our interviewee of the day today. Uh, her name oh, is dear. Danielle. <laughs> her name is Danielle Arsenault and she's a communications consultant and she has worked mostly at PR agencies, but had a brief stint in-house, which is sort of the inverse of me, where most of my career was in-house, but I had a few uh, shorter agency stints. And she and I met at one of those agencies that I was at in New York um, in the late 90s. Sorry to do that to you, Danielle. Sorry, it's okay. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Nice to meet you, April. Nice to meet you. So April um, has a virtual, are we, are you calling it an agency? And, but she's in Arizona. And so she hires people all over the country. Ah, smart. Um, you were I'm, way ahead of the trend. She was. I, didn't, I had no idea at the time. I mean, it was sort of one of those things that it started, it started with me getting a little bit tired of being on the coast because I was in New York City for 10 years. I was in LA for five. And then my best friend and I started thinking about, you know, we're working for ourselves. We can be anywhere we want. Why are we living in LA if we don't love it? And so we started looking around. People kept suggesting Flagstaff to us. And we're like, mm. Arizona? Like, I live in Arizona. <laughs> and then we went to visit. We're like, this is adorable. In Northern Arizona, it's got pine trees and mountains and it looks more like Colorado. It's gorgeous. And it's like the temperature is perfect year round. You know, it's even better than LA in my opinion because you actually have weather. Anyway, so I started just freelancing from here and then the freelancing took off to the point where I had to either turn clients away or decide to, you know, to do something bigger. And so, um, yeah, I started a virtual agency from an acreage outside the Grand Canyon in Northern Arizona. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to coming and visiting you once you have you're to. allowed to travel and we can leave the house. It is so, so beautiful. <laughs> wow. I'm like, uh, I, I've been to Arizona once and whatever. <laughs> did you, were, you didn't, you did not like it. Or no, didn't like it, was, it. It was fine. I forget where I was. Uh, Were you in Southern Arizona and Phoenix I area? I, we drove from LA to visit my ex-boyfriend's mother. Where was she based? Do you remember? I mean, one of like the towns, you know, cities that everybody knows. Tempe, Tucson, sure. Phoenix, Flagstaff, <laughs> Sedona, Prescott. It, it, it wasn't Phoenix because I would have, I forget. Anyway. Scottsdale? Maybe it was Scottsdale. Okay. So did you drive through the desert? It was really yeah. hot? Yeah. Okay. So then you went to Southern Arizona. You have not been to where the, the no, part of the I state haven't. I, I didn't okay. even realize that um, Northern Arizona was like that. Yeah. It, it is snow. There's it, fly fishing. Uh, oh, fly yeah, fishing. Beautiful. Right. So Danielle's a big fly fishing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I would not have guessed that from your still shot. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever does. No one ever guessed that there's like a middle-aged black woman who loves to fly fish, but I am, <laughs> I'm the one. The one. Wait, so, okay, I need to know, I know this is not on topic, but how did you get into fly fishing? I have to know. So I had always wanted to fly fish. I grew up actually in the desert. I grew up in Joshua Tree. I and Joshua Tree National Park is where I grew up my entire wow. childhood. I don't think I've and ever met anybody that grew up in Joshua Tree. No one ever has um, <laughs> until they meet me. And um, I remember going to the Palm Springs Mall and in high school and watching a river run through it and thinking that is something that I would like to do. And then fast forward some 15, 20 years, like from that moment in time, I was, um, re I'd rented a house up in the Catskills for three weeks. I was really exhausted and burnt out. So it was like on a whim, which is, you know, a theme in my life. I do things like very like on a whim and then commit to them in a, like a strange, strangely, 
dedicated way. I, um, I, I booked this house and for three weeks. And I think after three days, I thought I am bored out of my mind. And um, I started researching like what I could do in the area and fly fishing was something. And then I booked my first fly fishing trip and it was magical. And then I had, you know, I kind of dabbled in it since then. And then um, I would say about four years ago, I went to Asheville, North Carolina on a long weekend and um, went fly fishing and loved it so much that I quit my job and I spent a year fly fishing in Asheville. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm prone to these. I, I'm a very serious person, but I am prone to making kind of rash decisions. <laughs> so did you, have, did you have enough savings to last you a year while you went fly fishing or did you become a professional fly fisher? I had enough savings because I'm a very frugal person and um, I, I live, you know, very below my means. And yeah, I took, I, 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 yeah, I took that time off and fly fished and got a dog and just kind of chilled for a year. I hear my, my philosophy is that I probably won't be able to retire, but I can take these micro breaks here and there. So that's my philosophy. I'm going to do it while I'm young ish and healthy. I love it. <laughs> wow. Well, see, <laughs> we got, incredible. we got that. That's the best story. I think we've gotten it from uh, an interview. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to put down anybody previously, but I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so Danielle, uh, I know we've been talking a little bit before in the way I introduced you about, well, two different things. One is, you know, I've gotten back and now consulting and working with PR agencies and working with our clients. And I was struck by how similar things still are as compared to 20 years ago. Um, that they're not as different as I would have expected them to be. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? You know, it's really, it's really interesting that you say that because in some respects, I think it's exactly the same. And in other respects, I think it's radically different. Um, I think in terms of what's the same is that um, you have to hustle. You have to be prepared to roll up your sleeves, do a lot of really deep research, be smart and methodical about who you roll out, out with. But I really think that is a result to um, a dramatically different environment than what we saw 20 years ago. In um, the media, you mean? Media environment? Yeah, I think largely part of the media um, as a result of what's happening in the media, but also what's happening in the world. I think that there are just so many fewer media outlets than there used to be. And at these media outlets, there are fewer reporters. So I think that there's the bar is so much higher than it used to be. At the same time, I, I feel like this is also compounded by the fact that there's a lot of very serious news in the world. And so you know, the media who, um, who are still writing uh, are, you know, don't really have a lot of time for things that aren't like really, really serious. So I think that the effect of all of this is as a comms professional, you have to make sure, I think there's, it's twofold, you know, um, you have to make sure that your approach is smart and strategic, and you also have to manage client expectations like really rigorously. Um, so I, I'll give you an example. I'm working on a client now, and um, I think that they have the type of news that 10 years ago would have been a slam dunk. It would have gotten, you know, at launch, you know, a handful of stories, like maybe six to eight stories um, that would have been really, you know, good stories. Um, I have let them know that I think that um, where we are now is like, let's aim for one good clean story. Um, one to two really good clean stories. And let's bring the reporter along. Let's give them lots of lead time so that, and, and try to get them invested in the story in the hopes that that will be enough to get them to, um, to write something really comprehensive and nuanced and complex. Um, I, you know, something else that I have found too is that, you know, you used, to, you used to have news and maybe you'd pitched out two or three days before and then you would get a story. Um, because there are so many fewer reporters, um, if they're going to write something, even if something that they're, it's something that they're really interested in, they need more time. And you don't want to run into a situation where, where you hear from a journalist, oh gosh, I would have really loved to cover that, but I'm writing about this tomorrow and this is happening and, and we don't have staff to cover it. So I find that the more lead time, the more you can open up the process, the more conversations you can have with a reporter, the more likely that's going to lead to success. And that used to, like, you would never, 
work with someone three or four weeks in advance of a story before. Right, unless they were like doing a feature on uh, what you know the Disney company yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Unless you're unless unless you were a reporter at Vanity Fair or something right. like that, right. would you allow that kind of like advanced access and this ongoing dialogue? And now I think it's mandatory unless you are Facebook or. Um, or one or Google or one of the really that the type of company that people will just drop everything right, um, right. and stop what like they're doing to the report world. it yeah. because yeah because you know um, because you're changing the world everything you do is a consequence and now there's just not the resources to be able to do that so I find the lead times are really important. Interesting. April. Yeah. No, I actually I was I was like having um, a horrible flashbacks. We recently had a funding announcement we did for a client and we were only given a week to pitch the exclusive and a day before the announcement was going to be public business insider was going to take it as an exclusive we're like yay we did it even though the funding announcement wasn't it was it was on the fence as to how if whether it was a high enough series to actually secure an exclusive like that and so they said yes we'll take it and then we told them it was coming up the next day and they said, we can't do that. <laughs> so I actually had that happen to me not so long ago and it was pretty upsetting. It you know, was it's funny. It's, it's funny that what you're talking about is a funding announcement because it's also what I'm referring to. Um, I'm, working <laughs> a, I'm working on a couple of, of um, clients in the, in the venture capital space. And one of them I was brought on pretty quickly and we were able to generate really outstanding results, but then, um, you know, once it's covered, the news value diminishes. So it yeah. was, you know, I had to manage the client's expectations regarding that. Also, because the the fund was raised was small, right? The dollar raise was small, and so I've got something coming up in in a couple in a couple of months. And you know, this it's really interesting because I had about three days to prepare for one and now I have two months to prepare for the other and our approach is okay let's bring a journalist along and offer them behind the scenes access and let's involve them in our messaging and positioning and let's involve them in the launch so that because we know that the dollar amount is really really small um, and we know that based on traditional parameters it's not of interest but but our approach right. is um, so let's do something unusual to be, to bring a, a reporter along to get them to cover a story that they might not otherwise be interested to cover because it doesn't check off some of the boxes. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So is there any other thing that jumps out at you that's really different today than 20 years ago? Oh my gosh, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I also think that as, I mean, I'm sure you guys have covered this before too, and this won't be news to you, is that, you know, social media and content development and uh, content dissemination is a critical part of the PR equation. I think that if you are building a comm strategy and it's based purely on owned, then um, good luck. I, you know, I hope you're working with a, um, a really sexy brand that people are interested in. Right. Otherwise, it's gonna be a struggle. I think that, um, you know, having having paid content is an integral part of, of the equation in addition to earned because right. you're not going to you're you're not going to hit every reporter that you want to hit. Um, you're not necessarily going to hit every publication, and um, having a paid strategy can really supplement what you're working on in the earned side. Of so, do you mean like uh, digital marketing uh, or or um, yeah, paying for social media promotions? I think it's. I think it's social media promotions and content paying to boost them. I think it's paid content. You know what? You know what I was stunned at recently. Um, so remember back in the day, say you'd get a like a big hit in the Wall Street Journal, and then your client would order reprints. Right. Right, and you'd get that glossy reprint, and they, you could stuff it, like physically stuff it in your um, in your PR press kit. Of course, right. none of that exists anymore. Right. And and. And if you're a if you're a website of any type of value, there is increasingly a paywall. Right. So even if you do get a great hit on, on Business Insider, it might be on um, Inside Prime, 
and you can't click on it. Some, some insight, some websites are basically allowing you to pay to remove the paywall. It's the modern day reprint. So if there's right. a paywall, you can pay to remove that so that you can post it on social media so that people can access that, um, which is brilliant and shady. Um, <laughs> all, the, all at the same time. <laughs> they gotta make money just, somehow. This just happened to Laura. Right, okay. with, with the coverage in the journal? Yes. Mm -hmm. There was, it was a behind a paywall. What was it? Was Wall Street Journal PE Pro? Yeah. VC Pro. Don't even talk to me about Wall Street Journal VC Pro. It's yeah. like a thorn in my side. But not only is it, it's basically, it's, it's, it's basically behind two paywalls. It's behind the Wall Street Journal paywall and, then and, the, and the there's a, the pro. And they don't tell you how much it is. Um, you, you have to, on the website, it's not like, you know, a subscription to like newyorker.com where right. it's like, okay, this is $49 for the year. You, you have to book a sales consultation for them to walk you right. through. It's absurdly expensive. And have you gotten uh, the pricing? No. It is yeah, astronomical. Oh. It like, is how much? Give me, give me a range. Actually, you guys keep chatting and I'm going to pull open the email from Veronica because it was like, you've got to be kidding me. So, so the thing that I found with that, there's a lot of paywalls, you know, in different publications pay, and a lot of clients are like, well, I only want something that's not behind a paywall. And it's like, well, it's impossible. And I always try to say, well, your audience, the really serious audiences are the ones who are paying for it. So if you get on something behind a paywall, it's the people who are willing to spend money to read this stuff. I mean, that's the way I spin yeah, it. That's that's the way I said it as well. And I, I think it's not just spin. I think it's true, right? Yeah, if you that's good. Because I think it is too, but they don't seem to really go. Yeah, because <laughs> look, if we're talking about funds and we're talking about the startup world, if you're raising money, the people who are paying for this are institutional investors, people who can invest. They're, um, they're banks, right? It's JP Morgan, you know, it's you know, um, family offices. It's people who can afford this subscription. But I think at the end of the day, and I've, I've learned this lesson the hard way, is that if you've got an announcement of that caliber, founders really want to share it. Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to put it on their LinkedIn. They want to be yep. able to put it on their social media. So there's a, an intrinsic value in terms of like hitting your target square on with something like VC Pro. And then there's the emotional value right. of, a, of a hit. And I think that you have to really um, be very explicit with your client about, about this because it may be hitting the target head on, um, but it's not something that their friends can share. Right. Meanwhile, meanwhile, for the same client, um, we generated a hit in TechCrunch and they were over the moon. Right. And TechCrunch is like the gold standard for so many clients now. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, meanwhile, we, we reached out to Forbes and other publications and the, and the feedback was, oh, I would have loved to cover of this, to have covered this, but the Wall Street Journal wrote about it. Right. So, so I, which is fair. Um, so I think it's a matter of being, again, very explicit with your client. Okay, we can go after this, but this type of news, funding news, is going to most likely end up in VC Pro. It's going to be very limited in, in terms of who can reach it. I mean, I had to reach out to about four or five people in my network to just be able to get my hands on the article. Yeah. Like it was hard to just get for me as someone who works in PR. Yep. Does April have breaking news? I'm still waiting for it to come in, but we'll have it in a minute. Okay. Um, sorry. No, it's actually worth digging up and, and sharing it because I couldn't believe, I mean, I thought it would be high, but the amount that it was high, here we go. We have it. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming it's in the thousands. The cheapest way to get the article is through a $715 email bundle. Now that was just for one article. And to do that, we'd have to pay for a minimum of 500 emails and you have to pay $1.43 per email that you're sending out. So essentially you could blast out the article to, you know, an email list of 500 people. Or if you want to get a digital all-in-one subscription, a 12-month unlimited license is $12,995. A six-month unlimited license is $10,745. Oh 
unlimited number, and then you get um, included with that is unlimited number of static web postings, unlimited social media use, unlimited email distribution. But it's, I mean, I couldn't believe. Wow, you might as well get 12 months. I mean, six months is only like $1,500 cheaper. Right, so the, the easiest way we figured out to do it was to, you know, the minimum was to buy the email blast, but you still have to pay $750 just $715 to get the just, article that you to that share was about your company to begin with. Right. And in our case, we were going to be using it for our case study, right? To be able to share it as part of our marketing materials. It's like $750. I ended up getting it from somebody, right? For one hit. I think I got it from to share with the client. Yeah. But for us to actually use it yeah, I got just the text, right? I think somebody had it, it got it for me in Factiva. I think it was there. So oh, it wasn't- was that how they did it? I think so. Ah, if okay. I'm thinking of the person who I think gave it to me. Um, yeah, so it wasn't formatted. It wasn't like, oh, the beautiful Wall Street. It was just, you know, right. the Factiva text. But then you just slap on wow. the Wall Street Journal VC Pro and say here, and that's the, you know. And this was well actually- done. Well I done. Think this was actually for PE Pro, I believe. Oh, okay. Oh, that's different. Yeah, and then which C is different. <laughs> which is different. So just, just, for, e -Pro. just for our listeners, yeah. And then VC Pro, which is another. And there are marketing Pro too. There's a few. Oh, I didn't know there's marketing. There, I, there may, or maybe it was um, not mark. Maybe it was marketing. Or I'm thinking cyber cyber Pro is there cybersecurity version. There's a few. Yeah. So that's new. You're right. That didn't used to exist back, that's not nice. even that long ago. I mean, not even back in the day, back not that long ago, it didn't exist. So Danielle, what, um, I know you only worked in-house briefly for, and that was a long time ago, but you've worked with enough clients to sort of understand also how they function internal, you know, internal PR at a, a client. What do you, you know, what's the like specific, difference that you feel that there is between working in an agency or being in-house as a PR person? So I was in-house for a couple of years um, at a an online retailer in its hyper growth phase and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think that I think what he what it, it enables you to do is to have a very very deep understanding of the business that typically you're not able to get working in-house. Um, and it also, you Wait, have you, the, typically that you can't get when I'm you're sorry, working at an agency. Working, sorry, working right. at an agency. Yeah. Because working for an e-commerce website, I just had access to people and access to conversations and knowledge and data that I wasn't able to get at an agency. And this led to insights that led to results, being able to talk to the buyers, being able to say, oh, if I had information like this, I could get this kind, we could tell this type of narrative. Um, and a lot, you know, I think when you're working at an agency, it's not as if you don't have those thoughts or those insights, but your client is the gatekeeper. And mm -hmm. so whether or not you actually get the ingredients that you need to tell the story is you're really at the mercy of the, of the client and their, yeah. um, their ability to know where that information resides within the organization. And all the the will to be able to go and find it if they don't, mm -hmm. and then also, um, you know, the I guess the motivation to want to tell that type of story. Yep. Whereas if you're in house, you can kind of be a little bit more of a detective, and you can go and talk to this. You can just you know walk up to somebody's desk and have this conversation and that conversation, and that's a lot harder to do um, when you are in an agency. I really liked working in house, and I you know I hope to be able to do that again. I think it also depends really on, you know, if, if you land in-house, you better be really excited about what they do and the mission because there's, mm -hmm. that's, that's it. That's what you're working. There's, that's there is no job. other, yeah. there is no, what there is no other client. There is no new business pitch. There is no being re reassigned to another team. So you better really enjoy um, what it is that you're working on because right. otherwise um, I think, I don't think it's going to work. That said, Working at working mostly at agencies, I'm always surprised at how they so readily 
relinquish the most valuable media targets to an agency. Um, you know, and when I worked in an agency and they were great, I'm sorry, when I worked in house, I worked with an agency and they were great, but there were some people that I wanted to stay close to. There were some mm -hmm. relationships where I'm like, Hey, this is a really, really important relationship for us as a brand and I want to manage it in house. And I'm surprised more, um, companies don't do that you know, have that hybrid model where like, okay, the agency brings scale, the agency brings a lot of different relationships because when you're one person, you, you're limited, right? In terms right. of the number of reporters that you can know. Um, but it, the, strength of, the strength of an agency is that, oh, I, I don't know this journalist, I've never worked with them, but someone in the agency probably does. Let me put out an SOS, let me right. get the details and, and there's this collective benefit from working as a, as a team and that's what you get as an agency. Or when you're in an agency, you've got a number of different uh, clients and you're talking to different people and reporters, you learn about yes. stories that might apply to other clients. Stories, podcast opportunities, conferences right. and events, ideas, or whatever. just ideas, yeah. you know, all kinds of things. Like, yeah, that um, whatever conversations that are happening happen happen um and they're amplified and then because it's not just you it's 100 people working on these things right so yeah. that's the benefit of the agency um i do really kind of scratch my head when very big brands and i've worked on some very big brands just outsource every single media relationship because yeah. then i think that the, the on the flip side is that you might have a really great team, but then that person, Laura Schooler, owns XX person with the New York Times, and then Laura Schooler leaves, and then who owns that relationship? Right. Who's managing that? You're really at, your success is really dependent on the individuals who work on your team. And there's a lot of turnover. Yeah. In an agency. In an agency, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, it's, not only do you want to manage the high level relationships for as an in-house person for your company that you work for, but you want to do it for yourself too. I mean, you're allowed to be a little selfish uh, if you're the head of PR, right? Of a big company so that, um, you know, if you end up leaving and going to the competitor or whatever, you have that to take with you as well. Yeah. And I, again, if we're, if we're being selfish is that if you own that really critical media relationship it makes you more valuable within the organization, yeah. right? Um, yeah. To be able to call you know, this reporter or that reporter and have that shorthand with them is, is, is really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing now is that so many reporters are, you know, they change beats like crazy. They might be uh, doing the insurance industry one year and then reporting on you know, the health industry, the next, and I don't mean a health insurance, I mean like, you know, um, medical pharma or whatever. And so th that's, that seems like in my lifetime, I've seen a lot of turnover with reporters, either leaving reporting or going to a publication that has nothing to do with anything that you do or changing beats yeah. so drastically that you'll never have a reason to talk to them. And increasingly, they're going to work for brands, brands yeah. that are doing their own in-house newsrooms and content programs. Yeah. As the journalism world has become more and more volatile, you know, there, there are people who need, journalists need health insurance and job stability, right. and they're going in-house, and they're really valued in-house. Right. They're writing content for white papers or websites or social media or anything that, you know, blogs, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Executive speeches, right. conducting research, you know, I think that, you know, if you're a, a journalist and you're not Maggie Haberman, um, you are probably at least having these conversations about working in house as a brand. Yeah. In a brand. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So, and like in-person meetings, well, that's the thing. Whenever somebody's like, we're going to do an event, I'm always like, oh God, like inviting yeah. and inviting, not, I mean, not during this pandemic time. I mean, you know, before it, but still like, oh my God, the likelihood that an event where reporters are going to show up actually like happens the way you want it to in this day and age is so. No, even dinners, even like yeah. a, a, a small scale thing. So this is something that has changed really dramatically. You know, earlier on in my career, you could have coffee with a journalist and you still can at least in new york but you know there were all of these events and whatnot because everything has moved online and everything is so 
data driven. Yeah. There were, it is incredibly difficult for a reporter to leave their office unless there's a really good reason. Like breaking news, like, like somebody, uh, the president got shot down the street, basically, I feel like is the only Or yeah, or if it's one of those, again, one of those Fang companies, you know, Fang, the, was it Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, they're called the Fang companies, and I'm like, unless, <laughs> unless you're a Fang company, it's really hard to try to Fang. tease somebody out of the office. And, you know, I went to Forbes, um, their office in Jersey City. Yeah. I don't know, in December or January, and they have, and you walk in and there's a leaderboard. Every single article that's currently on the website is ranked in terms of the number clicks. of clicks that it's gotten, the number of times it's been shared on social media, the number of comments that have been left on the story. Uh, on, on the story. And if you, if you write a piece and it's not performing, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to write another piece and write another piece until it performs, until you get a, something that performs really well. So there's really not the, ex, except for a very specific type of reporter in this, uh, you know, um, of a certain echelon, there's really not the opportunity to get to um, build relationships the way, and go to an event or go to like a coffee the way that there used to be because they are being analyzed by the, how their story is performing online. Wow. I have, a, I have a follow-up question to that statement, which I think is really insightful. Um, do you feel like this ranking of how things are performing online socially is influencing how journalists are write, writing? Meaning, are they writing things more sensationally or from a more op-ed kind of slant to get that kind of reaction? I'm sure that they would tell you no, but surely that must be part of the consideration factor, right? Um, and I think that be. this is, I, I think that this is really dangerous. And again, I think that this is where the model in, in a lot of ways is really broken. Um, you know, we've seen websites and news websites have seen record traffic since people have been home because we have nothing to do all day but to like surf the internet. And yet we continue to see layoff after layoff and, and closure of publications. So Clearly this model is broken. I think that the things that are the most urgent issues may not be the most clickable, at least not at first. And so I, I think the news organization needs to have the ability to pursue a story over the long term that is not may, may or may not lead anywhere, at least initially. And few precious few publications have the ability to do that, right? New York Times, Washington Post, probably count on one hand the number of, of outlets that have the ability to do that. So short of that, you need to have a story that performs. Right, Oprah Magazine closed recently or is closing in like October. I mean, it's time, don't you think? <laughs> uh, I guess it's going to be online, but but you know, print publications <laughs> for sure. But it But then it changes the nature, like you're saying, the nature of how articles are interacted with and you know read and probably written right and well in headlines right whoever's writing the headlines that's like that's almost more important than ever it's yeah it's like the new york post is a headline writer's um type theory approach to headline writing for everybody so yeah and, and as pr professionals we know that the nine times out of ten that the journalist is not writing the headlines it's the right. editor right yep. it's a copy they editor. don't really have any control uh you know i recently i had a situation with a client who wanted something in um in the wall street journal and we were able to place it in the wall street journal but it was behind the paywall and he um and the feedback was is there any chance that they would run it in print and i said Who cares about print right and he and and he was like well more people will read it in print i'm like no, they won't. First of all, the data doesn't so support funny. that. If you look, if you're objective and not emotional about it, uh, the online metrics are astronomically higher than the print. Right. Um, also, who, what are your chances of finding something online versus finding something on, on you know, C27 of right. the money section? And yet these, these attitudes persist, right? Yeah, that's funny. I have a question for both of you. When oh. was the last time you bought a physical news source, be it a newspaper or a magazine? 
I actually have several subscriptions to magazines that always pile up and sit on my, and I have a magazine rack I bought for them thinking I would get to them so I could actually go through and consume them like I used to and I never get to it. But I do have, I have Consumer Reports and Forbes and Adweek and I had PR Week for a while. So I have, I have sort of a, a series. I think there's a couple more that I'm forgetting about, but I, I have you several. Subscribe, you subscribe to Adweek and print? <laughs> wow. What about you, Laura? I used to get a few magazines, but they have all petered out. And now I guess Time Out New York is not going to be in print anymore soon anyway. Um, I mean, I used to sometimes, you know, buy and then pick up the Village Voice. That doesn't exist anymore. So oh. anything that I actually read um, yeah. doesn't exist. So the only time I have in the past couple of years is when some there was a story that I wanted to, to read in the New York Post, you know, or in the Financial Times. So I like went and bought that one issue and that was it. Yeah. But you, you guys are reading pretty much everything online. Yeah. I mean, Twitter, you know, is so much of where I get my news. And then I might click through to if there's an article that's linked, you know. Yeah. It's pretty scary. I can't believe I was like, that would never happen to me. And meanwhile, you, you, I mean, you just have to adapt. There's almost no other way to, to, to get news, you know. It's a lot to keep up with, though. I mean, that's the yeah. thing I find the hardest. I know back in, you know, Richard Edelman's famous for, you know, making sure that all of the senior executives would read the New York Times for front to back on their way and their commute to work and and the Wall Street Journal. I think that was required, you know, if you were a senior person there. And, and it's just so much to keep up with now between all the different news sources and all the stories and you're expected into everything because everything's breaking and it's on social media. And if you hope oh, you didn't hear yet, it's like, oh my gosh. So I find it hard to keep up with. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but it's yeah, I don't know. I have I have a subscription to the New York Times online. That's the only, and I don't go to it and like read it though. I, I I have it there mostly because when I somebody sends me a story or I see something on Twitter, I can click through and read the whole thing. But yeah. I'm not going to the New York Times .com and like reading the online paper. Right. Oh, I do. I read uh, the New York Times. I, I subscribe and read the New York Times. The whole thing. Washington. I mean, not the whole thing, but. Um, I, yeah, I spend, to me, the New York Times is just the paper of record and right. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with it. And so I do read, I do read a lot of the New York Times. Yeah. Um, I, you know, certainly I, I scan U.S. headlines, the political headlines. I think the style section is not what it used to be. Um, but I, I also think there's pretty vital and, and interesting work coming out of the magazine, you know, like 1619 Project. Yeah. Um, and other, other things like that. Um, so I subscribe to the New York Times, I subscribe to the Washington Post and the New Yorker. So those uh, are the New ones. Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically because I kept running out of articles and I was like, okay, I sh should support them financially. Right. Um, so I finally broke down it and did that. And everything else is really on a as need basis for me. So I, I have another question for you, Danielle. Yeah. Are you listening to and pitching podcasts? Yes and yes. Um, so I enjoy listening to podcasts. Um, I mean, I like all the true crime ones. I guess I'm a little bit of a cliche. And then, of course, I listen to <laughs> the, the Daily. Yeah, right. and, and I really enjoy still processing from the New York Times with Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris. Um, I think Wesley Morris, their culture writer, is, is a genius. I do pitch them. And I have successfully placed clients on podcasts. So do you have tips, is, for, tips for our listeners on how to pitch a podcast? Yeah, don't promise them to your clients and um, whatever you think the timeline is, multiply that by three or four and that's what the actual timeline is. Because unless it's something like the daily, it, you know, your client's probably not gonna be on the daily anyway because they mostly, the guests they have are other New York Times writer or writers or people with a very specific expertise. But um, I have pitched more vertical podcasts and the process is really long and convoluted. So you'll pitch the host or you'll pitch the producer and they express interest and then they disappear for a while and then they reappear. And you don't really know what their season is. You know, podcasts don't really have a traditional kind of season. 
Mm -hmm. um, they're very irregular in terms of when they are produced and filmed. It's really at the whim of whoever's doing it, right? right. Um, so you don't know what their schedule is, how far booked ahead they are. Yeah. I mean, anything that's worthwhile for our clients most likely is probably booked you know, many weeks in advance. Yeah. It's not unusual to pitch and, and receive initial interest for a podcast and then it, it run five months later. Mm, right. Interesting. Yeah. I've had, it's not a place for breaking news. It's a place for right. more of thought leadership than things that aren't tied to a news peg. Yeah. And a lot of podcasts, I mean, I'm guilty of this in my own podcast that I've, I've uh, done, you know, maybe they last a season, maybe two, and then they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Happens a lot too. Like I'll, I'll search for, you know, a certain topic area for a client and I'll find like, six really great like these are the ones that would be great for my client and then i research them and like three of them haven't posted anything new for 18 months <laughs> oh. yeah yeah podcasts are hard i, I consider them extra credit <laughs> <laughs> but Not if you can get on joe rogan then everybody will hear you that's the that's <laughs> i listen to all the time so danielle is there anything else that you are Working on I, you after the fly fishing story, I don't really know how you could top that anyway. No, I think that's it. I always have a caper brewing. There's always shit low-key shenanigans running in the background, but uh, once I'm ready to debut those, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll debut yeah. them here. Great, we'll have you back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Danielle, thanks. You gave us like the most specific PR information that we've had, I would say, in all of our, our, our podcasts so far like actionable things. I'm in it, knee deep. It's been you very are. helpful. You're wearing your fly fishing boots, that's why. <laughs> Waiting in the, right. in, in the calm. Okay, well, great. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we really I appreciate will... it. It's just fun, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great. All right, bye-bye. Th thanks. See you later. Wow, she was fantastic. I still can't get over that fly fishing story. I know, she's like, that's just one of many of her like, crazy things that she's done in I, her life. I see why you guys are friends. <laughs> <laughs> so what else do we have to talk about today? We have uh, some of the team was asking about what you do when a client doesn't have anything newsworthy to share or pitch. Mm -hmm. And obviously the big mistake to make and the, and the no, don't ever do that. The what not to do from the PR pros who know, as we call this segment, uh, is to tell them they don't have something. Right. You can never do that. So, so then the question becomes, how do you either help them help you in finding that news? Mm -hmm. How do you suggest things that might create the news? So um, I find, you know, just coming up with creative different pitch ideas, but that takes a lot of time and then you have to pitch them out. And I, I don't know, it, recently I've been doing a lot of that and I just don't know how strong the results are, especially right now, like what Danielle was talking about before um, regarding the seriousness of news right now. I mean, we've got the election, we've got a pandemic, we've got unemployment, we've got Black Lives Matter, we've got, you know, violence like increasing in the cities. There's so much like important news that if you just have like a small fun company, it might be a little bit hard to get in there any which way, right? So if you don't have news and you're not part of like the real news cycle, uh, two things is going out, if, if you're related to a, um, an industry that has trade publications, that usually seems to be a good way to get in, at least to get some uh, media coverage. Podcasts, as Danielle was also talking about, except sometimes that can take, like she said, a very long time to come to fruition. Uh, and then the other thing, uh, you know, maybe contributed, but again, I think everybody's lining up to do contributed now because so many reporters uh, are not um, working that, that a lot of people are, are offering contributed and that's probably backlog too. So something else that I was working on today was literally coming up with other ideas to help a client start to evolve their business, not in a PR way necessarily, but ultimately, yes, it would help PR. How do you change what you're, um, website and your social media looks like and is saying 
might you change your business um, approach or the way that you're presenting yourself on LinkedIn or all these different things. Like let's dig into your business now. I was literally going to say that. Yeah. And, and I think I'm finding that people are more open to doing those kinds of things, especially if they understand that it, if it has a good PR story, then it's also usually a good marketing approach. Mm -hmm. So they automatically see, Oh, then I could also use this for marketing and advertising, et cetera. Um, I recently actually had a new business call with that, that, um, couch company. I don't want to say the name for confidentiality reasons, but Couchy. Couchy. Yes, it was called Couchy. <laughs> and, and Couchy essentially, um, <laughs> wants to be known as a sustainable brand. And I said, so do you have the most sustainable couch on the market? Well, no. Well, what else are you doing in the sustainability space? And Couchy said, well, we've been offering this. I love it. We're still calling it Couchy. Uh, they said, well, we've been offering this upcycle program where we don't ever just throw away the couches that we take out of somebody's place. We find it a new home. And I said, well, there you go. I said, can we, can we come up with a program where people can get on your waiting list to be part of the upcycle program because that gives you a really interesting angle right and you're going to be doing good business as you build up to the story of saying oh my god we helped you know this many people or we did this with this many couches right so anyway yeah so those are the those are the ways i believe to try and get you might not be getting immediate news results from what we're talking about, but it's helping a business evolve or change or become better so that down the line, hopefully after like a pandemic or after, you know, school reopens and kids are fine, et cetera, those sorts of issues, um, that there will be a new, you created a story that will be able to be told down the road. And in the meantime, um, there are other things you can do. I mean, we just recommended to a client this morning that we schedule regular calls with their SMEs, their subject matter experts, mm -hmm. to have an opportunity to interface with them and ask them what they're seeing in the business that they want to talk about. Because in this particular case, we've got a, a missing in-house dedicated person. Mm -hmm. So it's an opportunity for us to go act like we're in-house and go find those stories the same way that Daniel was describing she, you know, when you're in-house, you, you get access to all these conversations that you don't have as an agency. So we're trying to come up with a way of mimicking that essentially to get, to go in and dig up those stories and find out what's, what they think is important. Right. What's going yeah. on in their business, what's important in uh, their industry, right. what trends, what to plan for all of those things. Yeah. And then exactly. that, that again, help you to do PR you know, it, it down the road a little bit, maybe a little more short-term uh, bylined articles. Exactly. Yeah, and you find new people that could be spokespeople for your client right. too that way. And then I, I, the other tip that I would suggest um, that I know one of, our, one of our really great media relations specialists uses is Google Alerts, which I know everyone uses, but she actually has them set up so that any topic, not just for looking for client hits, but the topics that she's pitching stories on, um, she gets immediate stories that pop up yeah. so she can news jack immediately and say, right. aha, I see that, you know, DeJour just posted this article and I'm going to immediately email this person and say, hey, I have a, a similar story for you. I just right. Or I have a subject matter expert who can comment on that. Yep. Wow. That is... Um, I'm already exhausted thinking about that. I mean, that's like working, 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 working nonstop. Well, she's, she's a hard worker. So, yeah. but I, I mean it, but I will also say she's the one person that always gets the hits that you don't know how she gets them. You know, yeah, how, like how be. does she turn up with that? It's like, well, that's how. Yeah. She's so on top of everything all the time. Wow. Interesting. You know, and so she's constantly looking for new opportunities yeah to to trend jack or news jack the related the topics only thing on so the only the thing i'm going to ask about that is how about the, the so the story is done right so you're you're sort of like this you call the reporter they say yeah great my article's done well it's not even just 
I don't think she always uses it to go to the same pub. I think she sometimes uses it to go to competitors. Oh, ideas and to like... pitch them a similar story. Right. So at the same moment that they're going to see that the story hit and jour, you know, they're going to, Grubhub's going to hear from her. Oh yeah, I did see that. Oh good. There's a new story, a new angle on it. And I have a different uh, spokesperson to talk yep. to. Okay. That's interesting. Because you know how that works and your editor always gets mad at you and you're, well, at least this, this happened to me a couple of times where, you know, how did you this like outlet? the scoop? Yeah. How did this outlet get the story and you didn't have it? So, you know, if you have something in your back pocket that the second, if, if you've gotten the pitch and your editor comes to you and says, why didn't we have this? You could say, I do have it. I'm working I, ha on I it. have it. I'm working on it, but it's a different angle. Right. It's better. And then you, it's better. And then, and then you've proven yourself invaluable to that reporter. Right. Wow, you just you just gave up a, a big secret. So anybody who's listening to this podcast got the keys <laughs> to the kingdom. We gave so much good information today. I feel like if PR people listen to this episode today, they would be like off to the races. Put it on like when you go to bed, put it, you know, just like so it is in your method. brain. Yes. And then when you're maybe driving, if, if people who aren't in New York City, like drive, listen to it, listen to it a few times. And I think that <laughs> We've just put ourselves out of business. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's the sign of any good uh, counselor, right? Yes. Making yourself obsolete because yes. you pass right. on. Well, take our advice and do something with it, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. I think that's I think that's our agenda for today. Is there anything I want to add? No, I'm. I I feel like I threw up all of my knowledge all over. It was disgusting. I've been purged. <laughs> Unfortunately, the COVID-19 is not going anywhere, though. <laughs> keeps going. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for joining us for the Pierre Wind Down. And uh, thanks to Danielle for a fantastic chat. She was amazing. Um, and remember, you can share your own anonymous stories with us at any time. Just send it to the email address um, in the show notes. We can't wait to wind down with you guys again soon. <laughs> <laughs>